Welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast dedicated to reading, writing, and publishing historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of Historical Fiction for Adults and Teens. This podcast is brought to you by my passion for the art and craft of writing fiction and my delight in talking to authors I admire about books I love. So I'm here today with Tasha Alexander, the New York Times bestselling author of Historical Mysteries. I've just finished reading her In the Shadow of Vesuvius, which I absolutely loved. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a bunch of other stuff. So first of all, we were chatting before and you were saying, as I think it's probably true for many authors, that the uh, lockdowns and everything, the restrictions haven't affected you all that much. Absolutely. I think that most people who are drawn to writing, we might be, what do they call it? Extroverted introverts or something. Um, I'm happy to stay home. I, I, I relish an excuse to stay home. And so this hasn't really affected my daily life in terms of where I would go or what I would do. It, it just means I don't have to come up with excuses for not doing things anymore. <laughs> That's a good one for sure. For sure. I'd love it if you'd talk a little bit about what got you started at, in writing this series. This was number 14, was it? That's right. Yeah. yeah. This just, series of historical mysteries. I know. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it is. I, from the time I was a little girl, I loved reading. And actually it is the, the, the first memory I have, vivid memory that I have. I was sitting with my mom in our living room. And she was reading out loud to me. She was reading Little House in the Big Woods by Laura Ingalls Wilder. And all of a sudden, I realized that I was the head of her on the page. And it was just this revelatory moment because I learned then that you didn't need a grown-up to read. I don't know why I hadn't thought of that before, but I, I didn't. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, you can just... You mean you can just read whenever you want and pick up whatever book you want? And that kind of set me on my path um, of just reading everything I could get my hands on. And I think that there's a way in which writing is a very natural extension of reading. What other way do you have to have a book that ends exactly the way you want it to, right? (laughs) It's a very different process, obviously, but there's a way in which it's like reading. So I always, as I think like most of us do, most of us writers do when we're kids, you know, I wrote lots of little short stories about how I too, like Laura Ingalls was going to be a pioneer and very derivative work, shall we say, <laughs> that I, I would bind in pieces of cardboard that I tied together with yarn. And thankfully, I think none of them exist anymore. <laughs> but, but as I got older and, you know, you go to college and then you graduate and there are things like rent and health insurance and inconvenient costs of living. And being a writer didn't really seem like a viable way to pay those bills. So I, 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 I worked a bunch of what I like to describe as soul crushing jobs. But I really, you know, it's funny because part of I think what what drove, well, not drove me, but that I started to think about is that I started to recognize, I think when you have a job, you're not really loving. I started to realize that in our society, we really define ourselves by what we do. You go to a party, you meet someone, and they want to know what you do. Like your job is the thing about you that's interesting. I mean, for me, my job was the least interesting thing about me. And so I got into the habit of, I'd always say, oh, I'm 
working whatever job, but I want to be a writer. And I was always saying, but I want to be a writer. And years I went by doing this. And then I, I had a baby and when my son was three, I was reading Gaudy Night by Dorothy L. Sayers, who is a wonderful novelist, a British. She writes, she wrote mysteries, but she was a Dante scholar at Oxford. So her stories are just so intelligent and informed and wonderful. And in Gaudy Night, and I swear this does eventually tie back into what I was saying about becoming hey, a writer. Just, the, <laughs> the rambling is really interesting. So just keep going, okay? <laughs> in this book, Harriet Vane, who is in love with Sayers' protagonist, Lord Peter Whimsey, Peter has proposed. And Harriet is having a conversation with one of her friends at Oxford saying, and this is the 20s in Britain. And Harriet's saying, you know, the thing is, if I marry him, am I still going to be able to do what I want to do? I mean, you know, this is the 20s. Women barely have the right to vote. Marrying a member of the aristocracy it might very well change what she can do with her life because women's roles were so different than they are now. And her friend says to her, no, 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 you don't need to worry about that. Because once you know what it is you actually want to do, you will find a way to do it, no matter what obstacle is thrown on your path. You will steamroll over it. And I just had such a, an epiphany moment. As I read that, I just thought, she's right. And that was something my dad always used to say, too. He'd say, you know, if you look at people in the end, they really do what they want to. Because <laughs> it's really easy to have excuses not to do things. But if you really want something, you're going to do it. And in that moment, I just said, I always say I want to be a writer. I don't write anything. So I either have to stop saying that or I need to start writing. And so that next morning, I did just that. I sat down and of course my son was three. And as anyone who has children knows, the moment that you find out some, figure out something you want to do, that is when they stop napping and never nap again for the rest of their lives. <laughs> so I would, you know, I got him, he was playing Legos or something. And I sat down and started working on what became my first book and only to deceive. And I, I think because I had this little boy and I, I don't know, I guess I didn't feel pressure like times in the past when I had, cause it wasn't like I had never written anything, but I had toyed with the idea and would try to figure out what should I write. And I always had this idea that I should be writing something important or something popular or something, you know, I wasn't just thinking about the thing that matters about what you want to write and it's what you want to read. Mm -hmm. And so at this point I was a little older and I was a little wiser and I just said, okay, I am writing a book that I want to read because probably no one is going to publish this. And my mother's obligated to like it. So <laughs> if it does nothing else, it will entertain me. And so I, I literally sat down and I made a list of things that I think are interesting. And I really love classical antiquities. I've always been fascinated with the idea of forgery. I feel like it's so fascinating. You know, you can look at two objects and one is a Praclites original. And we understand just in some primal way how intrinsically valuable that is that touched this marble. But next to it can be an identical piece that is, you can measure it. It's the same kind of marble. It looks exactly the same. You would have to be an art historian who specializes in this sort of thing to see that it's not 
that it is fake, that it's not the original. And that's going to cost $300 in the gift shop if it's big or $50 in the gift shop. But I find it just so fascinating that even though they look identical, they're completely different. And so I was like, okay, so that has to go in the book somewhere. And (laughs) I've always loved the past. I've long felt that I was born in the wrong century. I really, I pick any other, especially in 2020, I pick any century (laughs) other than than, than now. And, but the late Victorian era is fascinating because you've got all of this social and political change that's starting and building. And, and I think it's interesting to explore what makes that happen. The Victorian era in particular, you've got all these amazing iconoclasts who seem to have sprung from the womb, ready to fight for social change. But until you get a broader swathe of the population saying, yeah, actually, we need to do this, you don't get that change on a wholesale level. And so I wanted to think about what makes people, because obviously, if you're the child working in the match factory, you're probably pro children not working in match factories. <laughs> but what if you're an aristocrat who has everything that you could possibly want? Your life is not, your life is so not impacted by these things that you don't even really know. I mean, a lot of women in the upper classes in Britain, they didn't even know what it was like for people of other classes. The only people who weren't of their class who they interacted with were their servants. So what makes those people start to sit up, take notice and say, yeah, this isn't okay. And so I wanted wanted my character to start off as one of those society girls. And then broadly speaking, beginning with having an intellectual awakening, which always helps you see a broader world, get her out into the world and start seeing things and becoming a person who would eventually care about those things. So that was really my starting point which is a very long answer to your question. <laughs> no, it was a wonderful answer. And I, yeah, I can totally empathize with finding those turning points in history that are really fascinating. And I think in my academic work, that's exactly where I was in terms of music history. But, and also yeah. for me, it's also finding the turning points in a character's life, which is why I tend to make my heroines on the cusp of adulthood. Because there's a, that's, but so yeah, absolutely. That was awesome. And you talk with great authority about Praxiteles and things like that. And did you study the ancient history in college or was it just a? I did English and in the end, medieval studies in college. My parents are both academics. My entire life, we've, I, my, my whole childhood was going to museums and, and learning about things. And I mean, one of the best gifts that my parents gave me was to show me how fun it is to learn things. And if I was interested in something, they would get me all the books about it. We'd go to the library and come home with giant stacks of books and read. And when I was in college, I did what I had to do for the, the, the major, but I was constantly taking courses in ancient history or things that I, I guess there's a way in which I was like a 19th century dilettante, really. I was dipping into things that I was no, in. No, you were um, a Renaissance woman. Renaissance woman. That yes. was what you were. Yes. I, okay. I like that. But like my interest in the ancient world started when I was quite young because my father, it was about a a 20 minute drive to school every day. And he, every morning would tell my brother and me a Greek myth on the way to, on the drive to school. 
And it was, it was just great. Cause you know, so that just, I just thought that was so fascinating. And where is Athena now? I, I was just so drawn into that world of mythology. Um, and that really set me on a lifelong path of loving the ancient world. But then when I was in college, the reason I wound up specializing in the medieval period was that I had phenomenal professors. And I think there's something just so exciting when you get, I didn't even know I was interested in the Middle Ages. And then I go to this lecture and I'm thinking, why did no one tell me how fantastic this is? And so I followed that instead of saying, I'm going to study. My my parents are very big on college not being vocational training. Their view was, "This this is the only time in your life you get to sit around, read, go to classes, and you don't have to, it doesn't have to be with a, a dollar sign attached at the end. You'll, he, my, my dad used to say, if you are educated, well-educated, that means you're going to be able to, to think for yourself and be articulate. And, and you can put those skills into use in pretty much any field. So yeah, that's very I good always, advice. But, yeah, yeah. I, I always say, had said, and I've argued with people about this, I'm a huge believer in liberal arts education. And I hated when colleges suddenly went, everybody had to major in economics and or engineering or something like that. Because that kind of broad education teaches you problem solving. You know, it teaches you having to you know figure something out. And for me, it was absolutely the best education for everything that I ended up doing. But yeah. partly because I, I did end up in the music history realm and I was a music major. But, you know, I did lots of things in between that had nothing to do with it. But because I had a broad education and could think things through and problem solve and do this lateral thinking thing made all the difference. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing I think that's lost so much now with people getting away from the humanities. You need to be a critical thinker. Mm-hmm. You need to know how to analyze the world around you. And, and that comes into any job you want to do. And so this idea that we all have to be plugged into the same thing and get the same kind of degree or else we're not going to be revenue generating. I just don't think that's, you know, if you look back at somebody like Einstein, right? Okay, he's a, he was a scientist, but he was so cultured and so broadly educated people who are, are at the top of their field, I think almost always are have curious minds and, and don't limit themselves to only studying their narrow thing. Yeah. I forget where I read this statistic. I'm, I'm looking up statistics for a project that some over half of the applicants to medical school who were accepted were like music majors. Yeah. <laughs> I can believe that, but well, and there's that really fascinating connection between music and math. They mm-hmm. always talk about. Yeah, it didn't work for me. So <laughs> didn't work for me. Well, I mean, me neither. <laughs> no, me neither. Boy, the happiest day of my life was when I was done with math. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but mm-hmm. uh, there are ways that the brain works that we don't even understand, and learning more, I think, is always better. And I just, okay. I don't know. I when um, actually. Right before I started writing, it must have been the year before I started writing, I was living in New Haven, Connecticut, and I decided to audit Middle Egyptian at Yale because I thought, well, Yale's great for ancient lang- Near Eastern languages. I'm going to go learn how to read hieroglyphs. And, you know, it's just fun to do that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm one of those people who, if I could have afforded it, I would have just stayed in college getting degree after degree. <laughs> You know, absolutely. <laughs> Me too. 
even though it took me 11 years to eventually get my PhD, it's, I was ready. I could have gone on to something else you know, without a heart. Well, a heartbeat. Yeah, there are so many interesting disciplines and you think, oh yeah, I'd love to spend five or six years just thinking about this and then yeah. moving on linguistics. to the next one. I would have yeah, done I linguistics. Really... I would have done linguistics. Oh so... yeah. Yeah. I think I would have done, I would have done classics. I would have done, I would have done a lot of history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, history. But I've always and been I, fascinated with languages. Yeah. You know, I never took an English course in college. Not a single one. Oh, actually, no, I tell a lie. I did one about criticism that where we read um, Augustine poets. <laughs> I think that was oh. the only, only that was like it. Or no, it wasn't Augustine. It was pr- earlier than that. And I can't remember what they're called. But yeah, so it's having now become a writer, I keep thinking, I'd love to go back and college courses in English, (laughs) just, you know, a few more literature courses or whatever. Yeah. My son, who the the former three-year-old, he's a (laughs) senior at St. John's College in Annapolis now. And that is a small liberal arts school where you don't have a major even. You, everybody does the same program. They start with Homer and just go through like over this, this past summer, they had to read War and Peace. And it's so, I'm so jealous. Why did I not know about this when I was looking at colleges? Because they look at science and they look at math and they do Greek and they do French and they read Latin poetry and they have such, they are getting that true sort of just immersion in the humanities and they know how, those kids know how to think. Yeah. They learn and write a paper. They write a lot. Yeah. Exactly. I, I, I taught for a year just after I got my PhD I was a visiting assistant professor at Columbia for a year and their program, everybody has these four courses that they have to take music humanities. I can't remember what they all are, are, but they're all humanities courses and it's required for everyone in Columbia college to take them. And I got to teach music humanities, which was really fun. It was my favorite course to teach. Yeah. That's so neat. And at St. John's, they do music. Like they learn how to do Gregorian chant and they actually have, they study composition a little bit. So you're not going to be an expert, but you're getting enough that you you know how to relate to it. And if you want to do more, you could, but I just think so many people don't get that. No, they don't, they don't have the opportunity if you don't have those kinds of core courses. Yeah. And this is a nice way to segue into your recent book, which I was so impressed with, not just because it was a gripping story, and I really couldn't figure out till almost the end who might have done it. But the way you interwove the history, the ancient history and and the place itself was very skillful. Now I understand more why and how you were able to do that, because that's how your brain works. But talk to me a little bit about setting it in the setting, the story, you set it all in Vesuvius, but in not in Vesuvius, not literally in Pompeii. <laughs> and um, I knew what you meant. Yeah, you knew what I meant. But it spans a big geographic and temporal area. And I especially liked your the one guy who was from Mount Montana <laughs> connection. But anyway, so let me think what was the question that was going to go along with this observation? <laughs> I think it was I, I reading your author's note, you went to Pompeii, and that was very clear because the place was really vivid. 
But how did you decide exactly what you were going to do? How did you, you have these two parallel stories and you bring them together at the end? How did that come about? First of all, thank you, because I, I truly appreciate your kind words. You are such an amazing writer. And so that is really just, I'm honored. Thank you. The answer to your question, well, actually, first I have to just go on a tangent, that Spartacus and his rebellion, for a while, they actually hid out in the crater of Vesuvius. So they were in Vesuvius. Oh, I mean, okay, thank you. you. You could be in Vesuvius. <laughs> so I wasn't so <laughs> um, stupid after all. <laughs> absolutely not. I have a very weird writing process that the thing I mainly can, that there's an old New Yorker cartoon that's too, I think they're math people because they're, well, they're math people or scientists and they've got this giant blackboard and I, I think they're doing some kind of a proof or something. And the one is saying, and they've got it by numbers, like step one, step two, step three. And one says to the other, step three is a miracle occurs. And then we <laughs> solve the proof. And I feel like that's my writing yeah. technique because I... I don't have the kind of brain I, I'm so envious of people who do, but I can't write an outline. If I wrote an, first of all, it would just be, people would be like, do you even speak English? This is insensible. I, I need a really solid starting point. And then if I'm writing a mystery, obviously I need to know who the bad guy is. And I need to know in quite great detail in my head, what his motivation is or her motivation and I know that somehow my protagonist will figure it all out by the end, but I have no idea how I will get from that beginning to that end. And I, I, I think that comes from two things. One, being a reader, I don't want to know, why would I want to know, why would I keep writing if I already knew what was going to happen? I'd be bored. But also, I feel like a lot of my training ground, so to speak, other than reading, was, you know, if you've got, was being a mom, when you have a little kid, they want you to tell them stories. And so I was constantly telling my son stories. And, you know, you don't have the luxury with a, a toddler of saying, all right, now let me think and uh, make an outline and see if the structure's right. You got to just keep telling the story. And so I think that helped me develop a kind of instinctual way of figuring out what to write next. I feel it. I can feel if we haven't seen a character recently enough, and I can feel if, I don't know, it's weird and miraculous. I'm always astonished when it actually does all come together in the end, because very frequently I'm thinking, yeah, I have no idea how this is going to work out. And even with the two stories intertwined, because they have to come together at the end. And I did not know how that was. I mean, well, I guess I shouldn't even say I didn't know. I, I now am far enough along after 14 books that I know this is how my brain works. And so I no longer at the beginning, I'd be like, I have to know. And now I'm like, yeah, you're not going to know. I think a lot of it comes subconsciously because yes. I've had so many times when I'm writing a manuscript and I'm you know, typing away and I'm thinking, why is this happening on page mm. 37? And then I'll be writing page 382 and I'm like, oh. That's why this happened on page, you know, the earlier. So I don't necessarily know, which is probably a sign of a very disorganized mind. But with the Pompeii story, I, I started off in the way I normally do. I want, I tried to pick a location that 
that's interesting from a historical perspective, both in the, now I'm actually in the Edwardian era. I never thought Queen Victoria would ever die, but I'm finally in 1903. (laughs) So she's been dead. So I want it to be a time, I set the series in motion in a certain year. And so I've got to, I can't all of a sudden have it be 1730. But when I look at that second timeline, I want it to be something that that complements what's going on in that Edwardian story. And I want it to be something that, you know, Emily, my protagonist, she is a curious, interested person. And so I want her to be able to go somewhere where, especially early on in the series, I wanted her to see other cultures. We're still recording, it's still going. <laughs> and you were on a and you were on a oh, roll. <laughs> Sorry. I was on a roll. Interrupted you. Uh, anyway. <laughs> no, that's totally fine. Please, I need to be interrupted because I just babble and hopefully at least semi-coherently. Um, no, but I, actually yeah, I'm, so gonna inter- thing- I'm gonna interrupt you with one thing yeah. that, that I think that yeah. what you're describing about your process you're able to do because you are a natural storyteller. You are naturally, you have a sense in yourself of what makes a story. There are plenty of writers and I work with a lot of them who don't have that sense and they have to look for a different way to figure out. I hate outlining myself too. It's another thing, but yeah. It is a funny thing because it seems like people are divided into the outliners and the non-outliners. Yeah, yeah. And I think the non-outliners, they can either be, they can either be people who just write and and tear their hair out and have to write 10 drafts, or they're people who have enough of a sense, an inner sense like you, to how the story, how to keep a story propelling towards its end. Yeah, and I really find that I get a lot of very productive ideas when I'm doing something else. Hmm. Like I love to cook, I love to cook. And I think that sometimes when you let your brain do its thing in the background, so if I'm cooking, I'm paying attention, the front of brain is cooking, back of brain is figuring out the problem or whatever. And all of a sudden you'll just think, oh, I have to go write this. But if I tried to actively figure out the solution to whatever is troubling me in a manuscript, that's, I, I, I'm my own worst enemy. <laughs> and then the other thing is with writing is that, you can edit, you can change stuff. (laughs) Exactly. And that's where, because I actually, I like to, I do all my research first. You can't ever literally do that because there's going to be something that you have to dip back into to find a specific fact. But I, I like to have read everything, done primary sources, got all that stuff. So it's in my notebook and hopefully in my head, and then just get the story down. And I'm like, I don't care if it's ugly, if it's full of typos, if they're, I'm not going to worry about word echoes at that moment. I just want to get the story down because then you've got a big stack of papers. I love revising. I like to go through with different colored pens that mean different things. And it doesn't have to be perfect when you first put it down. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It always amazes me. There are a few writers who do that. whose first draft is their only draft. Cannot imagine it myself, but yeah. I can't either. Yeah, I don't think that would be fun for me, but I think it's, again, it's how your brain works. Yeah. Some people really plan. Yeah, it's true. So back to your book, I loved the secondary character, the secondary, the ancient storyline. How did you think up that character? Where did she come from? She really, she came from when I start doing my research, I, especially if it's a dual timeline, I'll have the Edwardian things that I need to read. 
And like for this one, it would be travelogues and the, the Victorians and the Edwardians loved to keep diaries, write letters, publish their memoirs. So there's a lot of that kind of thing. And, but with the ancient story, I just started by just saying, okay, so I want to read Pliny. I want to read because Pliny watched the Vesuvius eruption. And we have a written account of that. He wrote it in a letter to the historian Tacitus. Tacitus. I'd always say it Tacitus, which my son said, are you actually an ancient Roman? Because that would have been their pronunciation, but we say Tacitus. (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, But he was in a villa on the other side of the bay watching the eruption. And what I really love about, so we have this first person account And what I find really interesting is that everyone assumed through the centuries that first eyewitnesses are notoriously unreliable, actually. Hmm. And so scientists, volcanologists thought that's not literally what the eruption looked like because he talks about this tree, this pine tree shaped cloud, and that didn't make any sense to them. And but it's still a, a worthy historical document until Mount St. Helens erupted. When Mount St. Helens erupted, it was exactly as Pliny had described. And they now, in fact, it was just that no one had witnessed and written an account of that kind of eruption before. And they now call that a Plinian eruption. So as I'm doing like that kind of research where I, cause I don't know where I'm gonna go. So I just wanna learn about the time period and the place. So I read a lot of wonderful like academic books, secondary sources on ancient Rome. And there's a wonderful book called Invisible Romans that talks about slaves and prostitutes and the people Mm. who we don't get from regular history. So I just, and I I, I do a lot of work on with reading social history, because that's what I'm interested. I'm interested in the daily life. What was it like to live in Pompeii? And generally from doing that sort, I start wide and then get more narrow. Something will come to me and I'll say, okay, I want to write about somebody in this kind of, if she's, if I'm writing about a a young woman in Pompeii, what can she be? And in this case, I wanted her to be a poet and I wanted her to be a slave. But one of the things that Roman slavery, ancient, ancient, slavery in the ancient world is quite, obviously there are ways in which it's similar, but there are a lot of differences from what we think about when we think about contemporary slavery or 19th century slavery in the, in the United States. Romans, slavery was, it was in the ancient world was such a just part of life. You're Julius Caesar, you go conquer people, you bring back slaves. Whoever lost becomes the slaves. But in the Roman world, some of the first people they were conquering were the Greeks. And the Greeks were educated and had this wonderful culture. So the slaves, I mean, they're slaves. And let's be clear, that sucks. It sucks to be a slave. It's never a good idea to make people slaves. In Rome, however, there was always a path to citizenship for slaves, Mm -hmm. which is, I find fascinating. It was called manumission. So you could save up your money and buy your freedom. So right there, there's a big difference. So slaves got money. Slaves got money. Yeah. Yeah. Your master would pay you sometimes. They did have money, so you could save up and buy your freedom. And in fact, there's all kinds of wonderful archaeological records, many of which come out of Pompeii, where you've got the document recording that, you know, now you're a free man, you're a full citizen of Rome, because the Romans, they were all about Romanizing. 
we're going to come conquer you and we're going to destroy your entire culture, but you get to be Roman. And they wanted people to be Roman. So as a slave, you had a path toward that. You also could be freed. You're, a, a lot of people, wealthy Romans, would free their slaves when they died or if they just... They lived in your household and especially the ones who were more like running a library or running or or tutoring your children because wealthy Romans had libraries in their houses. And so you would want a Greek slave in charge of that because they were the smartest, most knowledgeable librarians. You were living with those people and often in a way sort of socializing with them. So you become friends with your master sometimes. And this is not, again, I'm not trying to paint some rosy picture of, oh, see, it's okay to have slaves if you're nice to them. No, it's still not okay to have slaves. Mm-hmm. But, but it's just such a different approach to the whole thing. And so in the book, I wanted, it's one thing that I found when I was reading those you don't have a lot of primary sources about slaves' lives, which is part of the reason that wonderful academic book um, about the Invisible Romans is necessary. But when I was doing that research, what I found is that there are a lot of cases where you get freed slaves who are like, yeah, you know, my life kind of sucks now because yeah, I'm free, but I live in a crappy slum. And I used to live in this beautiful villa with a view over the bay. And and I find that really interesting because it's, again, still doesn't mean that slavery is a good thing, but nothing is ever as cut and dry as we think. And and so I I like the idea of Cassandra, whose father is is tutors to the the family's children, or tutored because they're all grown now, and runs their library. And She's got a pretty nice life. She's a slave, but what that means is that she hangs out with the daughter of the household and does her hair and they sit around in the courtyard talking about poetry. And then when she gets, she and her father get their freedom, she has to go live in this crummy little pokey dark house in the middle of Pompeii that certainly doesn't have a view of the Bay of Naples, that her life actually becomes harder. And I I always like things in history. There's so many great examples in history of times when something that you think this, oh, obviously this was so much better than that. And and yes, in ways it is, but there's so many contradictions. And I, I just love that kind of thing. So I wanted Cassandra to not be entirely delighted that she has to move out of this beautiful villa. And see how she could then start to navigate the city, which she knows, but in a way hasn't really lived in until Mm -hmm. she and her father are free. Yeah, I found that fascinating as well. And the the research, you wear it very lightly. In in other words, it was just a believable story. It wasn't like, wow, isn't this amazing? (laughs) And whatever. Anyway, so... Do you have, oh, I, you know what, I have to ask you, because I've read a bunch of historical mysteries lately and talked to uh, an author or two, and so many of them have married couples as sleuths. Yeah. And my question is, why is that? What made you decide that she should be married? I guess for me, the reason I did it was that I was starting, the first book in the series is set in 1890. And I wanted Emily to be a young woman, because like you were saying about having protagonists who are on the cusp of adulthood, she was actually had already been married, but she was widowed very quickly. But in 1890, in the British upper class, a girl has very few options. You 
you just can't not be married. It's just not, it's not, my wet hair is not falling down. You can't, if you're, of course you could not be married. You could be the tragic spinster, right? You're either under the control of your parents because you're unmarried and still living in their house or you're under the control of a husband. And so I needed her to be a widow so that she could do her own thing because widows fall into that gray, weird area where they don't need a chaperone. They can do what they want. And as in most societies, if you have enough money, you basically can do what you want. And so I needed And widows could, in a lot of places, own their own property and their own right and run their husband's businesses, that kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. But... I did want her to find a partner and I was really, I wanted her to find someone who could be her intellectual equal. I wanted to, I don't know. I I wanted her to have that companionship. And I also really didn't want it to be like a back and forth. Will she get together with him? Will she not? Because I just find that's like titillating for a little bit. And then you're like, really? Are these people still, you're on book you're reading a series and it's like book 27 and they're still like, I don't know if I can marry you. And you know, (laughs) that drives me crazy. So I I wanted, I wanted to give her that because once she was a widow, she didn't have to have, she could, Gertrude Bell went around and was mapping Persia by herself. She had a team, but before she married a Bedouin sheik and lived in a tent. So she (laughs) could have, but I liked that idea of say, so often books are propelled by con like romantic conflict. And I Mm -hmm. wanted to just have, but it's nice to have a little romance and it doesn't always have to be the source of the conflict. And so I I wanted to do that. And I, but sometimes you do think, boy, it's a lot easier if you can just have romantic conflict propelling things. But um, (laughs) but I didn't want to do that. I wanted her to get married and just have a stable, good marriage that's there because her husband is going to have had experiences she couldn't have and can help her in ways Mm -hmm. expanding her horizons. Yeah, I liked the balance between them, I have to say, because she was clearly the protagonist, and yet he had a very important role to play, and as you say, supported her, and I saw him as a kind of buffer, too, because buffering her from the wrong kind of attention or the wrong kind of whatever, so it it worked really well, but I, I was just curious as to what led to it, but anyway... Despite all the interruptions, I have kept you talking a long time. First of all, what's coming up for you? What's your next book? So I have a book called The Dark Heart of Florence. And I know I hesitated when I said that because the one thing with my books is that they twice, yes, twice, once, the titles always get changed so many times that I'm like, what's that? So I just think of it as the Florence book. It comes out (laughs) in March and mm-hmm. finds Emily and Colin in Florence, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so this, and then the secondary timeline is about a young woman during the Renaissance. Of course, I mean, it's during the Renaissance. During the Renaissance uh, up through Savonarola. So yeah, that sounds, that was quite fun to write. Like great fun. It does. Yeah. I love that period personally. It's you know. just it's so, well, it's so fascinating on so many levels. And one of the things that, that the reason I picked it was I read now, see, I have such, I, I don't have COVID, but I feel like I have COVID fog. There's a wonderful book called Swerve that's about, you, you have these book hunters in the Renaissance who went around uh-huh. to monasteries looking for ancient, what a great time to be alive, right? Your job is Lorenzo de Medici hires you to go scour monastery. Yeah 
books for the li- the monastic libraries for Aristotle and whatever. So I this the swerve is about how the rediscovery of the manuscript of Lucretius's on the nature of things, which is Lucretius was a Roman epic poet. He's writing about really Epicurean philosophy. But the idea of the swerve is that manuscript being found and rediscovered really made it possible for the Renaissance to happen. Right. So I was like, wait, I can get the Renaissance and my ancient world at the same time. This is fantastic. I know that is awesome. And I cannot wait to read it. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. Thank you. But yeah, it's, this has been great. And I will tell I hope you will come on again and talk to us about your um, next book. And this is why I do this podcast. I love talking to other authors about their process about the books about everything like that. It's just such a treat for me. (laughs) Oh, no, thank you. It's such a treat for me. And we were saying at the beginning that COVID hasn't changed for writers, you know, we work from home anyway, but it has taken that away. You yeah. know, you don't get to sit down with your writer friends and talk about this stuff. Yeah. And I do really yeah. miss that. So yeah, thank you for too. inviting me. It's a total pleasure. Well, have a great day and um, enjoy. And I will be talking to you again. Okay. Excellent. I look forward to it. Thank you so okay. much. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. You've been listening to It's Just Historical, hosted by Suzanne Dunlap. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google. Visit the podcast website at itsjusthistorical.com and find out more about me and my books at suzanne-dunlap.com. That's Suzanne with an S and Dunlap with an A. Until next time.